0: And today we're going to be looking at the Trinity Part 2. It should be like 50 parts, but we only have time for two. Last week we did a lot out of the Bible. This week we're going to go into church history, and we're going to do a lot of theology, and we'll have a little bit of Bible. And in all of those cases, there's going to be a ton that I'm not going to say, that we're not going to talk about. Uh, We're going to talk about the Trinitarian debates throughout church history, We're only going to talk about a little fraction of them, and there's still more after all of this. So if there's a certain part that you're looking for me to talk about and we don't get to it, I know, we don't have time. It's just too much. So there's plenty more you can study that, if this is interesting to you, you can find a lot more than what's in this class. Um, I do want to recommend a book. I'm going to lean pretty heavily on this book later in in the class. It's called The Forgotten Trinity by Dr. James White. It was actually a PhD dissertation, but it was written so that the average person can sit down and learn about the Trinity, which means it's right on my level. It makes it nice and simple for me. So, this is a I, I've read through this book and I, I lean on it pretty heavily when we get to the end of this and we start talking about the difference between being and person. He's got some great explanations and it's very helpful. All right, so I want to step back for a second and go back to last week. Last week, we looked at the scriptural evidence for the Trinity, and we just tried to lay that basic scriptural foundation for the Trinity. And we saw from Scripture that there is only one God. And we said no matter what else we say about the Trinity, we cannot deny that one simple truth. There is only one God. But yet, throughout Scripture, throughout primarily the New Testament, there are three persons... Father, Son, and Spirit. And these three persons are all called God. They all possess divine attributes. And they all exercise divine rights and prerogatives. They receive worship. They're involved in creation. They do things only God can do. That's what scripture showed last week. You, you guys remember that? Okay. That's what the Bible teaches. There is one God, and there are three people who are called God and ascribe the attributes and the qualities of God. Therefore, we must affirm that there is one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. That's what we learned in Scripture, and I want to take a moment to walk through a little bit of church history, primarily through the first three centuries of church history. And show you that the early church believed that too. The early church affirmed what's on the screen right now. I want to do that for a couple of reasons. First, um, the Catholic Church will tell you that the only reason we know about the Trinity today is because of Catholic Church tradition. And if the Catholic Church, through the council, hadn't revealed the Trinity to you, you would never have come to this conclusion without the church. And therefore, it's a product of the church that we have the Trinity. Well, the first council that actually discussed the Trinity we'll talk about today was in 325. All the quotes I'm going to show you are before that time. The second reason I want to give you some quotes from the early church is because there are cults like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and even the Muslims who will say that the Trinity and the deity of Christ were made up. And it was a complete fiction. Nobody believed it before the council. And the council just kind of made this up and foisted it on the church. And now you, you're you required to believe it because you're a Christian. But it's completely made up. By going through a little bit of church history here and showing you some quotes, we can disprove all of those assertions and just deal with it right off the bat. Okay, And I want you to pay attention to the dates on these because these are really early witnesses. And just listen to how they describe the Trinity. First, the early church affirmed that there is one God, Clement of Rome. Undoubtedly, Moses knew, but he acted thus, that there might be no sedition in Israel, and that the name of the true and only God might be glorified. By the way, Clement here is believed to be mentioned in the New Testament. Anybody remember in the New Testament where Clement is mentioned? Philippians. Philippians. I think it's Philippians chapter 4. He says, Greet Clement. It is believed that this is the Clement Paul was referring to. Theophilus of Antioch. And I pray for favor from the only God that I may accurately speak the whole truth according to his will. Irenaeus, a very well known church father from 202. We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation. Then from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public, and at a later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and the pillar of our faith. He's talking about the prophets and the apostles. And he said, we have received the gospel from them, first in their lives and their preaching, and then secondly, it was handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. This is a secondary point here. I want you to notice where he's grounding his argument. He's not pointing to the church and tradition to make his argument. He's pointing back to the scriptures and saying the scriptures are the basis of our belief. This is sola scriptura in the 2nd century, 3rd century. Anyway, let's get to the point here. He affirmed there is one God. These, the apostles, have all declared to us that there is... One God, creator of heaven and earth, announced by the law and the prophets. Origin. We Christians, however, who are devoted to the worship of the only God who created these things, feel grateful for them to Him who made them. While we're on Origin. When you go through the early church, just understand it's kind of a mixed bag, and there are some church fathers who say things that are good, like here, Origin says something we agree with. But if you read enough Origin, you'll find there's plenty there you will not agree with and you shouldn't agree with. So, just because I mention Origin does not mean I'm embracing everything Origen had to say. He got a lot of other stuff wrong. The early church, though, affirmed that there is only one God. And while affirming that there is only one single unified God... The early church also affirmed that the Father is God. And I'm only going to give you one quote here because I don't know of anyone in church history who denied that the Father was God. If you guys know someone, that'd be interesting to find out. But I don't know of anyone who did, so I'm just going to give you one quote. It's from Irenaeus. The preaching of the apostles, the authoritative teaching of the Lord, the announcements of the prophets, the dictated utterances of the apostles, and the ministration of the law, all of which praise one and the same being The God, whoops, the God and Father of all. There is one God and the Father is God. The early church also believed that the Son was God, Ignatius of Antioch. For our God, Jesus Christ. Do I need to keep reading? Notice the dates. 50 to 117. His life overlapped the lives of the apostles. You can't get any earlier than that. And you have clear affirmations that Jesus was God. Polycarp of Smyrna. And to us with you and to all those under heaven who will yet believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ and in his Father who raised him from the dead. Notice the Trinitarian language. Jesus is God and his Father. Polycarp, by the way, there's a very well-known story of his martyrdom in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'll let you decide whether or not it's true. But it's an interesting story. Justin the martyr, speaking of martyrs, the father of the universe has a son who also being the first begotten word of God is even God. Justin the martyr again, for if you had understood what was written by the prophets, you would not have denied that he was God, son of the only, unbegotten, unutterable God. If you would have just read your Old Testament, you would realize that Jesus is God. There's no excuse, is essentially what he's saying. The prophets declared it clearly. Melito of Sardis said that in the death of Christ, God was put to death. There's a whole bunch of theology you can go into there. We're not going to go there. Hippolytus, the Logos alone, of this God is, God is from God himself. Wherefore also the Logos is God, being the substance of God. And that little last phrase there, the substance of God, you'll see that terminology later in our discussion. That term would become very useful later in church history. Novation of Rome. This same Jesus is called also God and the Son of God. Early church affirmed that there is one God, the Father is God, and the Son is God. They also affirmed that the Spirit was God. Athenagoras, the Holy Spirit himself, also operates in the prophets. We assert to be an effluence of God, flowing from him and returning back again like a beam of the sun. An effluence is being sent out from God, coming from God, emanating from God. If he emanates from God, he is God. Origin again. We must understand, therefore, that as the Son, who alone knows the Father, reveals Him to whom He will, so the Holy Spirit, who alone searches the deep things of God, reveals God to whom He will. The Son knows the Father because the Son is God. And as God, the Son can reveal the Father. The Spirit can reveal God because the Spirit is also God. See the argument? So last week we saw that the Bible teaches that there's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We've just seen that the early church affirmed that same truth. But that brings us to some important questions. Because when the New Testament reveals the Trinity, it doesn't directly state the doctrine. You're not going to go into the New Testament and find one verse that clearly lays out the doctrine of the Trinity the New Testament presupposes the Trinity. It just assumes the Trinity. And it assumes it by describing the Trinity, by describing the the three persons and their attributes. It asserts all the elements of the Trinity, but it doesn't put them together in one single, nice, concise little package that makes it very easy for us to understand. There's not a verse that you can go to and say, see, that's the doctrine of the Trinity right there. The early church had to bring all that biblical evidence together to be able to explain it. And to be able to enunciate and distinguish between orthodoxy and heresy. And they were going to be forced to do that because certain people we'll talk about in a minute came out and started denying some basic fundamental truths that we just saw that the early church affirmed. But in all of their discussions and all of their efforts to define this doctrine and bring the biblical evidence together and explain it, you need to understand they were not interested in just philosophy. They were not interested in just making something up. Their interest was finding what the Bible said and explaining it. Herman Bavink, From the beginning it is clear that the Trinitarian dogma was not born of philosophic reasoning concerning the being of God, but of earnest meditation upon the facts of revelation, upon the person and work of Christ. It was concerned from the beginning with the deity of Christ, the truth of God's revelation, the true redemption from sin, and the absolute certainty of salvation. The early church was concerned with taking biblical evidence thinking on it, meditating on it, and then finding a way to explain that so we can distinguish between truth and error. One of the early church fathers involved in this Trinitarian debate later was a guy named Gregory of Nyssa. I want you to hear what Gregory said, because he's talking about this Trinitarian debate. And he says, what is our reply then to the Arians? This is who he's speaking to. The Arians are the people who are denying the deity of Christ. We do not think that it's right to make their prevailing custom the law and rule of sound doctrine. The Arians came up with this new teaching that no one had ever heard of. It was their tradition. It was their custom. And Gregory says, we don't think it's right to take what they think and hold it up as being the standard of what is true. Why not? Why not? For if custom, that would be tradition, is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom. And if they reject this, we are surely not bound to follow theirs. Here's his argument. If Forrest can have his own custom and his own tradition that he comes up with, and I have my own tradition, and he rejects my tradition, I have every right to reject his. It's just one person saying something over the next. Gregory says that's not our goal here. That's not what we're doing. How do we determine what is true? How do we determine what is true about the Trinity? Here's his answer. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire. And the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. He's talking about the Trinitarian debate. He's talking about this discussion about the nature of the Trinity. And he says the ultimate umpire is not our philosophy, is not our reasoning. The ultimate umpire is Scripture. Uh, Excuse me. The Trinity is not something that the church gave to the world. It's not something a council gave to the world. It's a divine revelation. And we've already seen that the Bible teaches that there is one God and there are three persons who are called God and described as God. But that brings us to a question. It's an important question. How can all three be God and yet there's only one God? It's a question we didn't answer last week. We said there's one God, that's what the Bible says. We said there's three of them. All of them are described as being God, but how is that possible? This was the central question at the Council of Nicaea in 325. This was the main issue. And their discussions there at that council focused on the relationship between the Father and the Son. So why would they have these discussions? If everyone believed there's one God... If everyone believed the Father, Son, and Spirit were God, why even have the discussion? That's because one guy decided he didn't believe that. A guy named Arius. Arius was born in Libya around 250. He died in Constantinople. Just a little basic background. And he was a presbyter in Alexandria, Egypt. Presbyter would be an elder, a pastor. But Arius had some different views on the Trinity. He had some different views on who Jesus is. He was a strict monotheist. He said there's only one God. He believed in the one and only God. He believed what he believed about Yahweh. was He was a single, only God who was uncreated and eternal. But Arius' monotheism got the better of him. Because he believed that if there's only one God, that means the Father and the Son cannot both be God. He said that would be a contradiction or that would make two gods. And he wasn't okay with two gods. He, he looked at the biblical revelation and said, there's one God, that must be true, therefore Jesus cannot be God. Jesus must be a creation of the Father. He must be a created being who was created by the Father before the rest of creation. Jesus, according to Arius, was the first, the greatest of all creation. But because he was created, Arius didn't believe that Jesus was eternal. He was a temporal being. He didn't have any part of the divine essence. He was different from God. Arius said that the Son was created so that through him, God could create the rest of the world. And by the way, this is Jehovah's Witness teaching right down to the letter. Jesus is a created being, and he was created so that the Father could create the universe through him. How many of you remember our discussion on immutability? What does it mean to be immutable? Unchanging. And we said that's an That's the nature of God, right? Are humans immutable? We're always changing. We're always changing because we're creation and we're stuck in time. Arius said as a created being, Jesus was mutable. Always changing. And not only is he always changing, but he would later receive elevation by the Father and he would receive that elevation and be exalted by the Father, because the Father foresaw in him his merits. And therefore, because of those merits, he was called the Son, in view of the glory that he would receive. This is Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, right down to the letter, Jehovah's Witnesses. And some parts of this fit with what the Mormons teach. The idea that he was the firstborn of creation. Well, Arius wasn't, he didn't get a free pass. There was a lot of people who didn't agree with Arius. One of them was the Bishop of Alexandria. The guy, interestingly enough, was named Alexander. Now, if you're wondering about bishops and presbyters, there was an idea that developed because of, I think, Irenaeus called monoepiscopacy, And it just says one guy leads the local body today you see that in like Baptist churches where you have one pastor and then you have a whole bunch of deacons under him and he's the one guy who leads the whole thing. The bishop would be the leader of that one individual church and there would be elders under him but he would be the main guy. Arius's bishop was a guy named Alexander. Alexander didn't agree with Arius and he fought him on this. But Arius had started a little controversy. And it was growing. So Alexander decides, I need to do something about this. I've got to stop this from going any further. He's out there teaching that Jesus is not God. And so Alexander calls a council in 320. Or excuse me, he calls a council, I think it's in 320. Of bishops, Egyptian bishops, leaders of local churches. And they get together and they decide Arius is a heretic, and they depose him. He's no longer a presbyter. You're done. Hoping that this will stop the controversy. Hoping that his teachings will stop. Well, Arius wasn't giving up. So Arius turns around, and he starts sending out letters and appealing to other bishops in the Eastern Church, looking for people to support him. And trying to rally people to his cause. And he does a really good job of it. He's a really good orator and he's really good at making an argument. And he starts convincing people to turn and embrace this new teaching. Nick Needham explains this. He says this. Arius' methods proved very successful in popularizing his cause. With the result that church leaders throughout the East became caught up in the dispute and began to take sides either with Arius or Alexander. So they began choosing, I'm with the bishop or I'm with Arius. And you start having this divide occur in the church. People who support him, people who don't. Anybody remember who the uh, emperor was around 320? Constantine. Constantine was the emperor. He stopped. They stopped the persecutions. He identified himself as the very first Christian emperor. We're not going into that debate. (laughs) But that's how he identified himself. He said he is the first Christian emperor. And he viewed it as his responsibility to end the division. And so you had a secular king who was going to bring unity to the Christian church. And he was going to bring unity by calling another council. This time, not just of Egyptian bishops, but he was going to call bishops from all over the place. And so he calls this council, and around 300 bishops arrive in Nicaea for this council. And then with them come a large number of elders and deacons who also attended the the council. In total, they estimate somewhere around 2,000 people show up for a council to be held under the authority of the emperor. Among those attending was a deacon from Alexandria, named Athanasius. Born around 296, uh, history records him as being a man of small stature, short man, but extremely well-educated. And like Arius, the man could make an argument and he knew how to speak to people. After Nicaea, he became very popular. So popular, in fact, that when the bishop of Alexandria died, the 33-year-old Athanasius would become the bishop. Athanasius was not in favor of Arius' teachings. He didn't like him at all. Like Arius, he insisted that there is only one God. But he said that the Father, the son, the Father and Son are both God, co-equal and co-eternal and indivisible. They are equal to one another. they are both eternal and they cannot be divided. That is to say, if we use some of the language from the council, the Father and the Son are the same nature, the same essence. That was the major sticking point at the council. What is the relationship between the father and the son? If we're going to say that they're both God, how are they related to one another? What's that relationship? Is Jesus God just like the father is God? So you get to the council. 325 comes, they all show up. And now there's not just two positions there. There's Arius in one camp. There's Athanasius in another camp, and then a third group shows up. I'm about to put some really big words on the screen. And they're Latin, so please don't panic. Okay, it's not that bad, I promise, okay? And we'll do it quickly just to get it over with fast, okay? Homoousius, heterousius, and homoousius. That's it, it's over, okay? We're okay, we're okay, we'll be all right. All right, look, these are not hard words they just sound more complicated than what they are. Let's break them up, okay? Homoousius. Homo and ousius. Anybody know what the suffix means? Not the suffix, the prefix. It means the same. Usius. What does ousius mean? Man, you guys are good. They're not as scary as I thought. Okay, that's good. The same substance. This was the position of Athanasius. Jesus is the same substance as the Father. He is the same essence. He has the same nature as the Father. Second group. Heteroousius. Hetero means? Different. Other. Usius means the exact same thing. means substance. This was the position of Arius. Jesus is a different substance. He's of a different nature than the Father. And then we have this last group that we haven't discussed yet, Usius. All right, Anybody know what Homoious is? Similar. Similar. Jesus is a similar substance to the Father. This was a teaching by Asubius of Caesarea. Does that name sound familiar? It's the church historian, Eusebius. All right, let's talk a little bit about this word here, usius. This is not just a word that was used only in theology. It was used prior to the Council of Nicaea. And I want you to understand that because its use prior to Nicaea was the reason Arius was able to be so effective because they didn't have a very clearly defined term. Aristotle used this term to refer to that which is neither predicated of any substance nor is in any substance. It's what makes you you. It's the most basic element of a being. The Catholic Church would later use this idea to teach transubstantiation, the idea that The substance of the bread is what makes it actually bread. But it didn't refer necessarily to the essence only, the the nature only. It referred to the individual that possessed it. So it could refer to the individual, or it could refer to their nature. Everybody following me so far? It could refer to either one. Then it started being used in theology, in Christian theology. And the term was applied not only to the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but it was also applied to the divine essence. And so you had no distinction between the two. You had no distinction between the persons and the essence, or the persons and the nature. They were both referred to with the same term. This term eventually changed. The the meaning gradually changed. And it no longer referred primarily to the individual, but it referred and became a synonym for nature. Uh, nature is a Greek word. I think it's pronounced physis. It's used in Second uh, Peter 1.4 and autocorrect, change it to physics. It's physis. It means nature. Second Peter 1 verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Usia and physis became synonyms. They began to mean the exact same thing. Usia, physis, substance, essence, and nature all became synonymous. And they all referred to that same singular divine essence. Usias James White explains it this way, it's the stuff of God. That which makes God, God. It refers to His fundamental nature. You guys remember our very first class on the attributes of God? Way back, what was that, January? And we talked about the nature of God. And we talked about we understand different creatures on, the pla- on this planet because we have a genus to put them in. And I told you about my good friend Clay, and I said, Clay loves a good scratch behind the ears, and he likes to lick you in the face. And I asked you, what is Clay? And the answer was, he's a dog. And you know that because you know that behavior. You've seen it in other dogs. And so you know Clay's nature without ever meeting Clay. He's a dog. But then we try to move over and we try to do the same thing with God to try to understand God's nature. And we say, well, God is divine. Okay. How many deities do you know? How many interactions have you had with other deities? Well, I haven't had any. Okay, so calling him divine, while true, doesn't help the situation, does it? It doesn't give us to his essence, to his nature. Okay, let's be biblical God is spirit. Okay, if you're going to say that's the genus that God belongs in, then how many other spirits have you had interaction with? And even if you want to say, well, there's other human beings and we all have a spirit, how many eternal, infinite spirits have you had interaction with? And the ultimate conclusion was we really can't explain God's nature. We have nothing that compares to God. But yet the Bible does tell us about his nature, doesn't it? How does the Bible tell us about God's nature? What does the Bible use to explain God's nature? I'm sorry? True? What's the name of the class? Attributes. It's the attributes of God. We understand his nature by the attributes. Some of those he uses anthropomorphisms to explain those. It's his nature is his attributes. His attributes are his nature. He's eternal, uncreated, undivided, simple, divine essence. It's not physical stuff. When we say the essence is the stuff of God, we're not talking about something physical. Because God is spirit. Herman Baving said, speaking of Usius. Hence, it indicated the divine nature common to all the three persons. There is one simple divine essence, essentially distinct from all creaturely existence and possessing all of the attributes. All right. I want to go through these and just talk through them for a minute. Let's start with homoousius. We said this was the position of Athanasius. The Theousius is the divine substance, the divine essence, right? It's all the attributes of God. If Jesus has the same essence as the Father, if he is homoousius with the Father, that means that Jesus possesses all of the divine attributes that the Father possesses. Does that make sense? Every attribute that the Father has, Jesus has fully, completely, and perfectly. Perfectly. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus has the same essence as the Father, the same nature as the Father. He has all of the divine attributes. He must be eternal, immutable, and uncreated. When the council said that Jesus is homoousius, when when they said he is one substance with the Father, there was no way anybody could sidestep that and say that Jesus is anything other than God. Heterousias, the position of Arius. Arius said that Jesus is of a different substance. That is to say, he does not possess the divine attributes. He does not have them fully and completely as the Father has them. That Jesus is a creature, he's mutable and temporal. Which of these two positions do you think Nicaea went with? The first one. The Nicene Creed. You'll hear the language here. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, the unique Son, that is, they're going to explain it, from the substance of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's of the same substance as the Father. The same essence. He has all of the divine attributes as the Father. And then they explain what that means. That means he must be God from God. Both of them are God. Light from light, true God from true God. When we say that he is of the same substance, he has all the divine attributes, and he is fully, truly, 100% God. But then there was that third position at the Council of Nicaea Homoeusius. This was not a heretical position, even though we wouldn't agree with it. I wouldn't say it's heretical. It's actually closer to the first one than it is to the second. The reason this came, they came up with this, Eusebius was a strict monotheist. He believed in the full deity of Christ. But he had a concern. He was trying to avoid modalism. We talked a little bit about modalism last week. Modalism is the idea that the Father and the Son are the same person. Actually, it says the Father, Son, and Spirit are all the same person, and they just show up in different modes or different forms. And he feared that if you said that Jesus was the same substance as the Father, that people would assume or come to the conclusion that Jesus and the Father are the same, and there's no distinction between them. And so he didn't want to say he is of the same substance. He wanted to say he is of a similar substance. He is like the Father, but he is not the Father. You see what he's trying to do? He's trying to avoid another heresy. Well-intentioned, but not correct. And don't be too hard on him. He didn't have the benefit of over 1,800 years of biblical studies backing him up. right? And this was a new discussion. Dr James White The reason they hesitated to speak of Christ being of the same substance as the Father was that they feared this could be understood to teach an even older heresy and they detested as much as that they detested as much as arianism modalism the idea that Jesus is the Father He continues that is modalists said the Father son and spirit were just three modes of being and they denied that they were three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Eusebius was just trying to avoid another heresy. And so he came up with this third position because he didn't think Athanasius explained it clearly enough. But the church has always understood, again, that there is one God. And that there are three persons who are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. But they are God. Each one of them is God. Alright. Well, if all three have one divine essence, if that's true, if they're all three God and they all have the same nature, the same essence, then how do you distinguish between the Father, Son, and Spirit without dividing God into three? How do you say that there's one God in three persons without saying that there are three gods? If Jesus, the Father, and the Son are God, how do you avoid saying there are three gods? Or if you say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same God, how do you avoid denying simplicity and saying there are three parts of God? Do you see the problem the early church had? They needed to be able to explain this problem. They needed to be able to explain it in a way that takes in what Scripture says and accurately portrays it. How do you maintain the unity and simplicity of God while claiming that Jesus is of the same substance, that he is homoousius with the Father? Answer. We're going to go with the simple part first. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate gods, nor are they different parts of the same God. The Father, Son, and Spirit are distinctions within the one true God. And these three distinctions we call persons. And if you go and read systematic theology, you'll find there's a whole discussion on how the word persons came up and how it came to be used there. Let's talk about what it means to be a person, because this is going to be helpful. Personhood includes, to be a person, it includes intellect, the ability to think rationally, It includes emotions, it includes the will, the ability to choose and to make decisions, and it includes self-consciousness. I think that's really a big one. Self-consciousness is identifying yourself as being separate from other people. Um, Debbie never wakes up in the morning and is confused whether she's Debbie or Mike. Mike never wakes up in the morning confused if he's Debbie. They're two separate persons, and they identify individually. You can see your self-consciousness, your self-awareness. If you were to close your eyes and imagine there was a camera up in the corner, you could close your eyes and see yourself sitting in those chairs. You would be able to see yourself, but you would find it very hard to see other people around you. That's personhood. God has all of these. Therefore, God must have personhood. It must be an attribute of the divine nature to be a person. Now, when we think of persons, there's some limitations on this word. Remember how last week we talked about words have baggage? There's some limitations when you say a person because you carry meaning into that. You bring a meaning Or definition to the table. We imagine a person with physical limitations. There's only one person. And they only take up so much space. When we think of person, we think of separation. Haley is not autumn. There's separation. We think of uniqueness among the persons. And by uniqueness, we mean the human nature has a certain set of attributes. But no human being has all of those attributes completely. You have certain attributes. And you have them to varying degrees. Forrest has some attributes that I don't have. He has some attributes in greater quantity. We both have the same attribute, but he has it in greater quantity than I do. And the same is true in the reverse. And we might take this understanding of person and apply it to God. And say that when we talk about person with God, we must be meaning physical limitations, separation, uniqueness, varying levels of attributes. That is not what we mean when we talk about the three persons of the Trinity. And to avoid the confusion, you'll find theologians who will use the term subsistence instead of person. All they're trying to do is avoid the confusion of the word person. We'll keep on using the word person here to make it easier. The term person or subsistence refers to the personal distinctions in that one divine being. Because scripture makes distinctions between the three persons. It makes personal distinctions between them. Let me give you an example. Matthew 3. Matthew does this with Personal pronouns. Matthew 3 verse 14. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? He's using a singular pronoun, you. He didn't say, like we saw in the Old Testament, I have need to be baptized by all of you. Plural. Or as we would say in Texas, y'all. He said, you, singular, one person. I need to be baptized by you. Another pronoun, him, is applied in the next two verses. But Jesus answering said to him, that would be John, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that would be John, permitted him, Jesus, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he, John, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. He's a person. He exists. He has being. This table exists. But when I talk about this table, I'm not going to refer to it as him. It's not a person, it's a table. Matthew 3, another typo, verse 17. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Even the Father makes a distinction between himself and the Son. I am well pleased with who? Him. Even the members of the Trinity make distinctions between themselves. Is this saying there's a division? No but it is a personal distinction between the two. Dr. White again. While trying to avoid the idea of separate individuals, we are speaking of the personal self-distinctions God has revealed to exist within the one indivisible divine essence. These are distinctions of relationship. What does he mean when he says a person? What we mean is that when you... Is that you can tell the Father from the Son and the Son from the Spirit by how they are related to each other and by what actions they work, they take in working out creation and salvation. These personal distinctions are demonstrated not only in the use of pronouns for one another, but in their actions, what they do, and how they relate to one another, their relationships with each other. Each person. Father, Son, and Spirit possess all the divine attributes. They all have the same essence. Yet that divine essence is not divided, it's not split up into three. And this kind of seems counterintuitive. It seems counterintuitive because three persons, how can three persons share the same essence? How can three persons share? Or let's say it this way how can three persons have the same being? And here again, we have to do another distinction. Being is not talking about nature, it's talking about existence. To exist is to have being. Everything that exists has being, it exists. You have being, you exist. A rock has being. It exists. A dog has being. Being just refers to existence, regardless of what it's referring to. But in our experience, two things can't share the same being. Two humans, we kind of mentioned this earlier, two humans can't share the same experience of existence, right? my experience of existence is not going to be the same as Percy's. We can't share the same existence. A rock and a tree both have being, but their existence is not the same. They have two different existences, right? They cannot be shared. But the difference between these two examples is that One of them describes persons, and one of them describes inanimate objects. Not everything that has being is a person. Not everything has intellect, emotions, will, and self-consciousness. A rock and a table do not have those things. To be personal means to have self-identity. You have an existence, you have a being and you identify as an individual, and you have a self-identity, if someone comes up to you and calls you a mean name, that's going to be offensive to you. It's going to be offensive because it contradicts your identity, your self-identity, and your self-awareness. However, if you went up to a rock and said, you stupid rock, rock doesn't care. (laughs) Someone said, I've never done that. The rock doesn't care. It has no being. Now, if you went to your dog and you called your dog a mean name, you stupid little animal, yes, you're so stupid, he's going to be just happy. (laughs) (laughs) Could care less. And he'll just sit there and enjoy you petting him and he thinks you're just saying all sorts of good stuff to him. He has no idea. And he doesn't care. He's not a person. You can call him every mean name in the book. And I'm not suggesting you go home and do that. You can call him every mean name in the book. It's not going to affect him. He has no self-identity. He might respond to the way you do it, the manner and the tone in which you call him a name. If you were to yell at him, yo, stupid dog, he might respond to the tone, but he doesn't care about the word. He's not a person. Your dog has a personality. Right? They all have different ways of interacting and behaving. But the dog doesn't identify himself from other dogs. He doesn't see himself as a part of other dogs, as a part of the group of dogs. He doesn't go out and start working for all of dog kind and start trying to do great dog efforts, you know, to improve the livelihood of other dogs. He doesn't care about the orphan dog on the side of the road. He cares about his food bowl is full and that's all he cares about. Got an amen out of that one. In that sense, the dog doesn't have personhood. He has being. He has existence, but he is not a person. Everybody following me? Okay. You exist, therefore you have being. And your being, your existence, is limited and finite. We talked about this when we talked about omnipresence and eternality. You're limited to one place and one time, despite what the science fiction movies will show where you can go back in time and see your younger self or go forward in time and see your older self. No, you can't. You have one being. You have one existence, and it cannot move outside of time. It can only occupy one moment in time and one spot in creation. You cannot be in two places at once. But your being can only also be shared by one person. Which is why we have such a hard time separating being and person. Because in our experience, our person is our being and our being is our person. And we have no way to physically or conceptually separate those two. But your person and your being cannot be shared by anyone else. James White said, one being, one person. That's what it is to be human. Everybody following me? Now, when we have these categories of being in person, we can't then take those categories and superimpose them back onto God. Because God is not finite. He is not limited. God is infinite. His being has no limitations. Your being, my being does. We have significant limitations. God's being is infinite. It has no limitations. He is not limited by space and by time. He's not confined, his being is not confined to a singular person like ours is confined. His being exists in three persons. God is one divine being. Existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We have to step away from our conceptions of being and person to understand it. Is this making sense? Okay. Dr. White again. While the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Spirit, each is fully and completely God by full and complete participation in the divine being. The three persons all fully participate in the existence of that divine essence. That's not three separate centers of consciousness. That's three persons who are all sharing the exact same existence. Dr. White again. Actually, we've already seen that. I don't need to go through it again. Now, we also said that we can distinguish them by what they do and their roles and functions within the Godhead. And within the Godhead, within the being of God, there is a definite order. In the operation of the three persons. They have different roles in creation and salvation. I'm going to have to speed up. I'm going to run out of time. The Father elects. The Son redeems. And the Spirit applies. Three different tasks. Three different works. This is another way you can distinguish between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They have different functions. Different roles. They also have personal relational properties. That is... They have relationships between the three persons. These relationships define how they exist in relation to one another. And their relationships have a definite order. The Father is first, the Son is second, and the Spirit is third. Please do not assume that this is an order of being, in the sense that uh, the Father is more God than the Son. And don't assume that this is an order in time, that the father preceded the son, and the son preceded the spirit. That's not what it's talking about. Or that one is larger than the other, that the father is greater or bigger or better than the son. These refer to their relationship to one another. And the relationship between the father and the son, you'll hear described with the term begotten. How many of you have heard that term used? He's the begotten of the father. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Begotten refers to an eternal, timeless relationship. It does not refer to him being born or created. He is the unique Son of the Father because he is the only Son that shares the Father's divine essence. John 1, 14 and 18 says he is the only begotten. C.S. Lewis explained this relationship by describing two books. Two books that are stacked on top of each other. And he imagined those books, there being a top book and a bottom book. And they have eternally been in this condition. They have always had the same relationship. The top book was always the top book. The bottom book was always the bottom book. They have never been separated, they have never been divided from one another, they have never changed positions, and neither book was ever alone. The relationship between these two books has always been the same. And in that sense, one book is begotten of the other. It derives its place in its relationship from the other book. The top book is where it is because of the bottom book. That's what this idea of begotten means. It's just describing that relationship. Joel Beakey gives a great chart to explain the unique relationship of the son to the father. Wow, we're out of time here. Um, God has other children. We're all adopted. But none of us are like Christ. None of us are like Jesus. None of us share that same relationship that Jesus has. This will be on the slide so you'll be able to see it. The Spirit's relationship with the Father and the Son is also described. It's described with the term procession. He is said to proceed from the Father and the Son. And again, please do not superimpose meanings onto this term. It is not talking about creation. This describes the eternal relationship of the Father and Son to the Spirit. The Father and Son send the Spirit. And in that sense, the Spirit comes in third in that order of relationship. Not in degree, not in essence, not in divinity. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about relationship. Joel Beeky, last two quotes. We'll be done. What does it mean to speak of the Spirit's procession? The Comforter relates to the Father and the Son as their spirit, which means breath of His mouth. In Scripture, spirit or breath often represents a person's life, including the inner life of understanding and emotion. The Spirit then is so named in a manner that suggests the breathing of God's inner personal life. Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Spirit of God. By receiving his divine breath, Jesus pictures them as receiving the Spirit. God breathed into man and he became a living soul. At regeneration, you receive the Spirit and you receive new spiritual life. The Spirit is how you experience the divine life. Last part of this quote. This analogy of breathing should not be understood to mean that the Spirit goes forth out of God's essence, but that the Spirit proceeds within God's essence as an eternal act of the Father and the Son. That is to say, when the Spirit goes out, He's not dividing the divine essence. He's just sharing with you the experience of that essence. The experience of God's existence. Does that make sense? All right. We are over time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Um, We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, and while uh, there's so much of you that remains incomprehensible and beyond our understanding, we do thank you that you have given us at least a glimpse of who you are and that we can come to even a basic understanding of your infinite and majestic nature. And we just ask that you would help us to learn more of you, uh, to be in awe of who you are, to uh, use that incomprehensibility as a way to lead us to worship and to reverence you. And we ask that you would help us do that this morning as we worship. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.